Two and a Half Admins, episode 66. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Um, Before we get started, we were thinking it might be fun at Christmas to do a kind of AMA episode where you can ask us anything that is not related to the topics we normally cover on the show. So just anything you want, it can be as stupid as you like or as serious and philosophical as you like. Just any questions, just the usual show at 2.5admins.com. And also, we forgot to mention that you've been on Late Night Linux and Late Night Linux Extra recently, Jim. Yeah, the Late Night Linux Extra was particularly fun. A nice chat between myself and uh, Neil Gumpa, who, despite being a big advocate of butter, is a uh, super cool guy. Yeah, it was interesting to have that kind of debate between a ButterFS advocate and you, a ZFS advocate. It wasn't anywhere near as hostile as I feared it might be, so that was worth a listen. And yeah, the two just regular episodes of Late Night Linux, you filled in for Graham when he was away. So uh, links to all three of those in the show notes. Let's do some news then. And the first one is quite funny. There was an outage that caused quite a lot of Tesla owners to not be able to start their cars if they were relying on their phone to get into it and start it, that is. That's the detail that most of the news coverage just completely glossed over if it mentioned it at all, is that this was only a thing that affected unlocking your Tesla with an app on your phone. Key fobs still worked fine. Uh, some models have a uh, like a smart card that still worked fine. I saw a lot of heated <laughs> argument back and forth about this on Twitter, and you know, whenever people would point out that you know, hey, key fobs still worked, you know, this is just an app thing, then the argument would very rapidly devolve into you know whether or not there were people who truly don't even have their keys on them ever because they always rely on their phone app only to unlock the Tesla. And you know, you have people saying, oh no, you know, there's there's lots of people that do that. And other people say, well, nobody would be that dumb. I kind of come down in the middle on that. There are absolutely people that dumb. People that dumb exist. <laughs> and those people couldn't get into their car today. But that's not to say that it isn't dumb. It is absolutely dumb. You know, if you've got a key fob for your car, just keep it on your key ring. It reminds me of a story I heard of doing like Black Hat or one of the big conferences in Vegas back when we still had the conferences in person. And they rented a car and it had something like that with the app to unlock the car and so on. And then they did the touristy thing of like drive out to the desert and look around or whatever uh, and got to a place with no cell service. And they got out and took some pictures and left the key fob in the car, assuming they'd be able to unlock the car with the phone, but they had no cell signal, so they couldn't use the app to unlock their car <laughs> or call for help. Yeah, see, those those people never had the same experiences that I did in my 20s. As most longtime listeners are probably aware of by now, I'm a former, U- well, not former, I'm a U.S. Navy veteran. I spent uh, ages 17 through 23 enlisted in the Navy, and I found out a couple of things really quickly. One is that if I took my keys out of my pocket and set them down in the apartment somewhere, I was very likely not to be able to find them for upwards of 15 to 20 minutes of searching. And two, that your typical U.S. Navy chief petty officer does not care that that's the reason why you did not show up for work until you're, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes late. So uh, that taught me that there's only one, well, no, there's two places my keys go. They're either in my pocket or in my hand. That's it. (laughs) If I'm not wearing pants, they're in the pocket of the pants that I was wearing. So users of the app were hit by a 500 error. So basically the web service behind the app was down. And then, so the app did nothing. And it really doesn't matter what the error is. It doesn't even matter that it was an HTTP error. The, the point is that 
if you want the app on your phone to unlock your Tesla, you know, you're you're relying on a remote across the internet service to be functioning for that to happen, which is a horrible idea for just <laughs> so many reasons. Like, if that's a convenience for you and you enjoy that, that's great, that's fine, no notes, as long as your key fob needs to be on your ring, you know, in your pocket. It's it's a convenience. It's an extra thing. It's not the thing you rely on. It's it's kind of like I tell small business clients. I typically will enable Windows uh, volume shadow copy on you know Windows Server VMs that uh, my clients are storing their data on, and it's a very handy convenience as long as it's working. You know, the clients can self serve a lot of their own backup recovery needs. They can go to the shadow copies. They can you know, the previous versions tab on Windows Explorer. They can see up to two versions of a given file on a given day, depending on how frequently it was modified, and they can pull stuff right out of there. Don't have to talk to anybody else. It's great. Unfortunately. It's also not super reliable. So as far as I'm concerned, shadow copy is not the backup. It's an additional convenience as long as it's working that frequently will make your life easier. But you're still going to have the real backup. It's the same thing with Tesla's and, or, or any other car and like a phone app that relies on an internet connection. If that's an additional convenience and it makes your life easier, great. But that does not absolve you of the responsibility to have a real local only unlocking solution on you. It reminds me of when the Facebook employees couldn't get into the data center. Yep, I was going to bring up the same thing. <laughs> couldn't they make an app that used some kind of like near field or something to be able to basically be a key fob, but from your phone instead of having to go out to the internet and assume that the car is either pulling or has a connection back to Tesla some way to receive the signal that it should unlock the doors because some phone app said so? They absolutely could. I'm not entirely sure why they didn't. Or at least have that as an option with the app or something. It's got to be about authentication, isn't it? A little bit. Like, I can understand they don't want to make it super easy for someone to modify the signal it sends and try to unlock other Teslas. But, you know, it's been shown with key fobs that that's really not that impractical. Yeah. <laughs> and that just not making it part of the app isn't going to slow down the type of people that would do it anyway. And so it does seem like they could make a version of the app that didn't depend on the internet connection. Yeah, even if it was some sort of token that was regularly changed mm -hmm. when the internet was active, maybe. There's got to be a way to do it. It can't be a technical limitation. It's got to be just someone was sold on using the cloud. Like Jim was saying, some of the cars have the smart card type reader, right? And phones have some kind of thing where they can be used as a smart card, right? Yeah, or you can just do Bluetooth unlock. Yeah, so they have a bunch of options. The near-field communication option would be nice in my personal opinion, just for the simple fact that, you know, then you know that your exposure as far as somebody listening in from across the parking lot is greatly reduced. If you've literally got to get your phone to within a half an inch of the door for the unlock to pop, that, you know, resolves a lot of SIGINT concerns. I suspect that there are probably some valid security concerns that went into that decision that we still have not unpacked entirely. They may not have been entirely wise, but I, I think it probably wasn't just sheer buffoonery either. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is if you're going to allow somebody to unlock their very expensive car via phone app, you probably really don't want to expose yourself to the bad press of if somebody owning that person's phone, it then becomes very easy for them you know, as a result of that to steal the car. Well, people's phones get compromised every freaking day. And, uh, you know, if the authentication has to come from remotely, 
then your exposure becomes a little bit less to issues of, well, this person was careless with their phone and therefore lost their car. Well, in particular, the other one I would see is if there was some more kind of class break type thing where somebody figured out how to spoof the NFC or the Bluetooth unlock or whatever, and could then just unlock any Tesla. If it's server side on Tesla's fine, they can look for patterns. They're like, this one person is trying to unlock a thousand Teslas at once. Maybe we should block them temporarily or we just turn the app off and be like, sorry, it's down because somebody was doing something they shouldn't have. And just being able to have the pattern analysis and the ability to pull a, a, a break on Somebody, you know, <laughs> messing with everybody's Tesla does have some upside. That's a good point. You know, when you talk about somebody unlocking, you know, like a thousand Teslas, that just brought to mind. Do you guys remember when uh, when people first started getting actually concerned with key fob security? I, I think it was like in the late 90s. And somebody, I think it was car and driver, did an experiment where they uh, they walked into an airport parking lot with a key fob for a Cadillac that there were like a lot of, you know, Cadillacs around and they, you know, did the tick tick and just trunks pop <laughs> like all around them because it turns out that, you know, GM was not doing a very good job with uh, making the unlock patterns unique. Yeah, there were only so many bits in their pattern. And so, you know, when they produce 100,000 cars, a bunch of them are going to have the same code. Probably not anybody on your street and probably not anybody in the grocery store parking lot, but at a giant airport parking lot. Yeah, I don't know, man. They weren't talking about like, you know, it, it wasn't a deal of every once in a while one other Cadillac would pop open. It was a lot of them to the point that I'm not so sure you were correct about the grocery store. <laughs> Entirely possible, yeah. This is kind of hazy memory at this point, but I think that was actually what got them started down that path and trying to test it is hearing so many reports of people going to, you know, unlock their car in a grocery store or similar parking lot and seeing somebody else's trunk pop open. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 25A. So DNS cache poisoning has reared its ugly head again. And again, and again. And will continue to do so. Now, this time, there is there is a long history of DNS cache poisoning attacks due to, to side channels. And this time, the side channel comes via the ICMP, Internet Control Message Protocol. The thing that I'm not seeing enough people report on on this, yes, this is a serious problem if you're running a publicly accessible DNS server with no firewall on it. But if you're doing that, you already fucked up. Because <laughs> we're not just talking about like paying. Somebody just being able to ping your server is not sufficient to allow you to um, get this side channel attack on the kernel. And let's be clear, we're talking about a side channel attack on the kernel. DNS just happens to be a convenient use for it. But, uh, you know, the issue is side channel attacks on the kernel's randomization. 
And you have to be able to hit that server with any ICMP packet that you want to in order to exploit this. And anybody who's running a publicly accessible DNS server should already be disallowing everything but specifically the ports on specifically the protocols that they want to enable. And if you have done that, you are not vulnerable to this attack. Right. And, you know, where this attack was most interesting is if you could do it against, you know, Quad9 or Cisco OpenDNS or the Google Resolver and, and so on. And originally, they, I think they did report that Quad9 and OpenDNS were vulnerable, but have since mitigated the problem. And yeah, it turns out that if you send certain ICMP messages, uh, I think especially the path MTU discovery, yeah. which is not usually something you want to block, uh, especially if you use IPv6, but it changes enough state in the Linux kernel when you do it that you were able to detect that on the other side and they could... Um, so if they sent the packet on every possible port number and then by looking at how the state in the kernel changed, they knew which one of those port numbers is the one it was expecting the answer on. It could then send the DNS reply saying that, you know, Bank of America is actually over here in dark web land. Then that resolver would remember that and tell everybody who asked for the next whatever the TTL is, you know, 20 days, <laughs> that, yes, Bank of America is definitely over on this sketchy thing. <laughs> if we think all the way back to the first version of this DNS exploit, it was that every resolver made the connection out on port 53. And so you could just send it back on that port as someone who is off path. Like, you're not even part of the conversation, but you just send a response that nobody asked for. And they'd be like, oh, okay, I'll write that down. And if anybody asks, I will share that information. And so then they changed it to have a 16-bit random transaction number and to come from a random port number to make a much higher possible number of combinations. So there's like 130 million, I think it says. So it was much harder to do this, and that worked. But then it turns out back, I think it was 2008, there was a side channel attack on this that meant there was some way to get an idea which port it was going to be on and then to be able to spoof it. And then they fixed that, and then there was another one, and they fixed that, and then this is yet another one. Uh, but this one actually gives a lot more information than the previous one, which I think was called Sad DNS. Yeah, Sad DNS. But this one gives away a lot more information about the host and allowed them to to poison DNS. Luckily, nowadays, almost everything has HTTPS, and so if you do end up on the wrong site, you're going to get the big scary warnings in your browser, and at least they're not going to get anything from you. But interesting that this one only affects Linux. But I think the thing I also wanted to mention was don't just go blocking all of ICMP to try to fix this. That's not the right answer. And especially just try, even blocking path MTU discovery can end up causing you a bunch of headache or end up causing a bunch of people not to be able to reach your site. And so don't just go blocking everything trying to, to fix this. Are we 100% sure it doesn't affect FreeBSD? No, we absolutely are not. We are certain that this very specific instance of this very specific problem is a Linux problem. The thing that we're not certain of is that there aren't just as many problems lurking in FreeBSD's kernel that haven't been unearthed yet, in part because technological advantages or disadvantages completely aside, this is not in any way intended as FreeBSD hate, but there are a lot fewer eyeballs combing over that. There's a lot fewer people trying to red team it. It does still run half the DNS for .com and other root TLDs, so it's definitely still a target, especially for these types of attacks. So I imagine more eyeballs will be on it now specifically looking for these types of other ways to exploit the same kind of concept for the DNS attacks. 
Yeah, but in terms of white hat researchers that are, you know, arbitrarily red teaming a project, I don't think you would disagree with me that the Linux kernel gets a lot more of that than the FreeBSD kernel does. For sure. I don't know exactly how they, they found this bug in Linux. I, like, I doubt it was reading Linux code. It was more looking at what was happening on the network. But yes, I, I definitely agree with you there. And the researchers, some of the comments suggested they weren't that familiar with other operating systems. Like, I wouldn't actually assume that macOS has exactly the same ICMP processing code as FreeBSD, like they did. Yeah, I saw some reporting that just said, oh, FreeBSD or just BSD is not affected, so therefore macOS is fine. Again, it's a reasonable assumption that, you know, macOS isn't affected by this particular attack because this particular attack is very specifically about how Linux itself handles ICMP messages. It's not the kind of bug where it's like, you know, oh, the protocol has a bug and anybody who implemented the protocol faithfully will have this. It's a very, very specific, like down in the weeds implementation issue. So no, I wouldn't expect to find the same problem on BSD or Mac OS or Windows, you know, or I don't know, freaking Haiku, whatever, because it's a different code base. But at the same time, like you're saying, I wouldn't rule out that the same class of vulnerability exists. It just requires you to tickle it in a slightly different way to cause it to happen. Yeah, so I I think a lot of the thing about that to keep in mind is that side channel attacks, they're very, very low level attacks and they're kind of what you resort to after all the big bugs have been worked out. You've got to get way down in the weeds and really understand some very strange behavior on the code base that you're attacking when you're talking about doing side channel stuff. It's not an attack that typically you're going to really try for unless you've already exhausted everything else. And this seems to be an extremely secure code base versus your level of access to it, whether it be over the network or whatever. Once you get to that point, you start resorting to side channel stuff. But because it is so low level, uh, you, you don't expect a side channel attack on one code base to work against another one. Crappy car analogy. It's like, uh, you know, you find out that you can, turns out you can actually start your mom's 83 Buick with a screwdriver, not just the key because it's gotten all loose and sloppy. Like you don't just expect everybody's Buick to be vulnerable to that same attack. Like that was something very specific to that one. Now in this case, it's not just like your mom's one Buick. It's like the same Linux kernel that the whole freaking world uses, but still you don't expect anything else other than like that stack to be vulnerable to that particular attack. Yeah, like in particular, this one, you almost would have assumed that any one DNS software would have a bug like this, like it would be in bind or DNS mask or or unbound. But in this case, it affects all of them because it's actually the state change in the Linux kernel that allows you to figure out which port is the one that if I send the bogus answer to is the one that will actually be accepted instead of just dropped as I didn't ask for that information. I'm just going to throw this away. Yeah, again, the attack is not against the DNS application. It's right. against the kernel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DNS applications all use the kernel and therefore become vulnerable. But this is not actually a DNS problem. It's a kernel problem. Uh, DNS just happens to be one particular, oh, yeah, this is a really neat way to use this kind of a thing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. 
Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue. And that's exactly what Tony's done. He says, I've got a question for Jim. I wanted to know why he prefers using KVM with Vert Manager rather than something like Proxmox. And he's got a follow-up question. How do you handle Windows administrators who need access to the KVM server but do not have access to Vert Manager because they use Windows? I'm going to take a guess before Jim answers. Oh, good. Maybe just because don't want to give the entire machine over to just Proxmox. Still want to be able to do other useful things on the machine. No, that's, that's an interesting thought, but no. The majority of the reason that I'm doing KVM and Vert Manager to begin with is trying to avoid the whole server in a bottle problem where you've got, you know, 20 different things going on on one box and it's a nightmare trying to remember how to put it all together and which bits to back up or not back up and all that kind of thing. But to start with, Proxmox didn't exist when I started using KVM and Vert Manager. Then moving on beyond that, wherever possible, I tend to be more on the side of, you know, start with a vanilla operating system and, you know, build your services on top of it rather than use the, you know, end-all, be-all, all-singing, dancing crap of the world. I am not a big fan of most NAS distributions, for example, for that reason. Now, there are some reasons to choose a NAS distribution now over, you know, just install Samba on a box. But for as long as possible, I was a big fan of, you know, just install Samba on a machine. You don't need, you know, a free NAS or a Zigma NAS or whatever for that. Now, as far as Proxmox goes, in addition to that, there's also the problem that although it's not the reason I didn't use Proxmox to begin with, once Proxmox started gaining a lot of popularity, I started getting a lot of questions from people about it. And a lot of them were why were along the lines of why does my performance suck so bad with this Proxmox on ZFS machine? It would be an understandable mistake to think that Proxmox, well, it's probably basically just, you know, web application and, you know, standard hypervisor, standard ZFS on a standard distro somewhere. That's really not the case. Much like what IX Systems does with TrueNAS, they have a pretty heavily divergent, locally maintained code base that reaches very deeply into the stack, uh, storage very much included. And I have seen a lot of cases where you take a machine running Proxmox with ZFS and you have, you know, this absolutely god-awful random I.O. performance. And then you take the exact same hardware and you install just bog standard Ubuntu on it and KVM and the same VMs doing the same thing. And poof, your storage performance problems went away. So as long as that's the issue, I'm definitely not going to be a Proxmox fan. 
Now, on to Tony's second question about, you know, how do you handle Windows admins who need to access the KVM server but don't have access to Vert Manager because they're Windows admins? That actually doesn't come up that frequently, for me at least. Usually my MO is more along the lines of the Windows admins have access to their Windows servers, you know, via RDP, the same way that they would honestly be managing them already anyway. Now, in the cases where I have a larger or somewhat more advanced client and they do have admins who want to have access to the physical VM host and should have access to it, which are frequently two different things. There are a few answers for them. And right now, the easiest one is, well, congratulations, you get to go ahead and go Windows 11 right now. Because if you're running Windows 11, then you've got Windows Subsystem for Linux with graphical app support, and you can just apt install Vert Manager right there on your Windows 11 box in WSL, and it works a treat. Uh, there are a couple of paper cuts with that. In particular, I have found that with like longer term use, if you leave a bunch of uh, Vert Manager consoles open forever on a Windows 11 box and they're backed by Spice rather than VNC display, it has a nasty habit of kind of losing track of what it's doing with the Spice session and things may not work until you reboot, you know, the Windows workstation. So um, I tend to just replace Spice with VNC in that case. I would argue for the most part that pure Windows admins just shouldn't have access to the Vert Manager, uh, to the the uh, KVM host in the first place. Uh, for one thing, you know, keeping in mind again that when I do this stuff, it's always with ZFS backing. Mistakes that you make inside the VM, I can fix immediately just about any of. Once you get access to the VM host, now it's starting to get interesting with your ability to, you know, dig yourself into holes that I can't just immediately pop you back out of. But yeah, I would just say in general, Appliances can be very useful, but they very much lock you into doing exactly what the appliance can do in exactly the way the appliance wants to do it. And sometimes you want to do something just a little bit differently. And while it may be possible, it just gets really messy doing that on an appliance. And so like Jim, I've always preferred to just take my vanilla operating system and and build up what I want on it. And, you know, appliances are great and they're a great way for people to get into stuff, especially when they don't know how to do it all manually. But when you do, usually you find the uh, the appliances uh, putting you in a straitjacket a little bit and making you do things their way and not do things they don't want you to do. Whereas when it's a vanilla server, you can do what you need to do on it and and do it your way. But is there not an argument that if you use an appliance, then it's going to do its job and nothing else. And then if you want to do something else, you get another appliance or another server for it. Whereas if you have just a vanilla Ubuntu or FreeBSD, build it up, then you've, the temptation is to do more with it than maybe you should do. Well, if Proxmox did just do its job and nothing else, I would probably be using it. In my opinion, Proxmox's job and nothing else would be, again, just to be sitting on top of a bog standard distribution, giving you an easy to use GUI to manage things. And if that was all it did, I'd be a lot more in favor of it. But that's not all it does. It wants to get its fingers, you know, deep into the stack and the decisions that it makes are not always good ones. And I don't want to expose myself to their bad decisions in pieces of the stack that, uh, I'm sorry, folks at Proxmox, but I just don't think you've got a lot of business getting your fingers deep into the ZFS stack rather than just using the standard release. It causes problems that would not be caused if you were just using the normal open production release stack. I'm an opinionated ZFS user and nobody else's defaults are going to be what I want. I mean, I wouldn't even say that. 
there's always defaults. It's a case of, you know, the defaults that I want to start from are the defaults of the OpenZFS project itself, not what, you know, some randos at this one distribution thought were a great idea. Again, particularly when, you know, my tolerance for that can be higher than it is, but when you start causing problems by doing that, my tolerance for your fingers in the stack just disappears really, really quickly. Something you didn't mention with the Windows 11 stuff, though, is the uh, the keychain. And you wrote a blog post about that recently. Yeah. Um, if you're doing Vert Manager right, then you'll have published SSH keys for the uh, the virtual machine host that you're managing by way of Vert Manager. And behind the scenes, Vert Manager is going to open a lot <laughs> of separate SSH channels to that host that it's managing. Now, if you've got a passphrase on your key, which you absolutely should, it's just, you know, another layer of security, you need an SSH key agent that will allow that key to remain unlocked after you have typed in that passphrase once for a reasonable amount of time. Now, by default on Windows 11, uh, Windows Subsystem for Linux, you are not going to have any kind of SSH agent installed. So you need to install a package like Keychain and configure it so that when you properly have SSH keys with passphrases, not without, now you can just type in your password to unlock it once when you start the session, rather than when you go to double-click uh, you know, a virtual machine invert manager to open up a console window, literally having to type in the passphrase, I think it's like eight times <laughs> you have to type it in before you've opened all the channels that it wants to manage that particular VM in a console session. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes then. We'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.